Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Volontario, quindi la palla assista a Mauro che mette il movimento Maradona, contropiede di Maradona, pallonetto e terzo gol del Napoli, ha segnato Maradona. Veramente che venga battuto questo calcio di punizione, piede sulla palla, la specie, parte il tiro, rete, rete, Maradona ha segnato, magnifico calcio di punizione da parte della formazione napoletana, il Napoli è passato in vantaggio.
Hello and welcome to a special bonus edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. He is an author of many, many books, many of which are football-related, and then many others which are not. But the one we are going to focus on today is the book on the life of Diego Armando Maradona, and it's called Once Upon a Time in Naples. John Ludden, welcome to Forza Napoli. Good evening, Joel. Good, oh, good afternoon, my mate, where you are. Thanks for having us on. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, I alluded in the intro, but I think it's safe to say that your book is the foremost English book, maybe just the foremost book, period. I know it's been translated into Italian as well on Maradona. This book has really been a journey for you. The original version was published in 2005, so you've spent the better part of 17 years working on it. Earlier this month, you published the final edition, and I suspect many of our listeners have a copy of at least one of the previous versions. So without giving too much away, because I do want people to go out and buy the book, and we'll talk about where they can find it later, but what can people look forward to reading about in this version compared to in the previous ones? It's basically, it's just that it's a vastly expanded on the 2018 version which itself was you know that was a fair size this one's coming at 500 pages 180,000 words it's got a dozen more new chapters the chapters focus on shooting back to his time in Argentina as a kid I've got new chapters when he was in Cuba apparently recuperating but he was causing havoc over there I've got there's a chapter on Sibiri there's also a full chapter on the Camorra the Camorra was which this chapter focused on a guy called Rafael Catullo, who was like the new Camorra, and they took on the old Camorra, and this battle was going on just before the it practically ended just as Diego arrived, but it caused us a carnage. So just to set the scene with Diego's relationship with the Giuliano family, I thought, you know, it was a great excuse to go into that and write all about what went on there. This book actually starts in 2000. Well, it starts on the day that Diego passed in Naples, 25th of November, 220. And it's just a short piece at first, but it actually ends. The last chapter is how Naples copes with him passing and what actually happened on the day. And as ever, it still kind of begins properly in 64 AD when Nero visited Naples and caused absolute mayhem with his singing and the Neapolitans blamed him for causing Vesuvius to go up not shortly after that and it ends say 2020 and so there's quite a bit to go at because this version is as much about the city, Naples, as it is about Diego it's just give me a chance just to say like a last dance with it just throw everything in it's a monster. It's a bloody monster. It really is. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think it's big. You know, I consider monsters to be uh, scary. <laughs> I guess it could be scary uh, to try to tackle, but it, it really is a, an enjoyable read. And as you suggested, we're going to talk a little bit more about the idea that it's a book about the city as much as it is about Diego. But you've really 
taken the opportunity to set the context, which I think is really, really important in telling the story. We're also going to talk about telling sort of the story. I mean, it's, 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 to me, it's always been a footballing godfather story, Joe. You know, mm-hmm. it's just got that with a Morricone soundtrack. It's just, to me, it's always had that. Diego and Naples has just always had that feel to it. I just think it just goes together like a, a fine wine and a nice cheese. And it's just, I just love it. I do. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to write. It is. I mean, and Maradona is, is very symbolic of the city in many ways. But before we get to that, I want to talk just quickly because, I mean, this conversation is about the book, but there was a documentary that was based on the book by Asif Kapadia. I'm curious to know, how exactly did that come about? Does the phone ring and it's Asif just on the other end? No, 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 no. There's actually a book in how that came about, to be quite honest with you, but I'm not writing a bloody thing. <laughs> like I say, the book was wrote in 2005 and it come out, sorry, it come out in 2005. And about three weeks after the book come out, the publisher went bankrupt and all the copies of the Maradona, once upon a time in Naples, the original, they were sold off to pay his bills. And they just went all over. I never earned a penny, you know, of that first copy. They just all disappeared all around the world. And I think it was just, it was a nightmare at the time. And I kind of knocked my back because I was still working. I was still working full time then. So the book disappeared. And then slowly over the next couple of years, I had my email in the book. I'd be getting emails of people who's bought the book and saying how much they'd enjoyed it. And they'd pop up like a Palestinian police officer in 2008 who was being shelled by the Israelis. It was an infratada. And he was reading the book. And he emailed me at the time. And there was another a British doctor in the Congo. And it just different things. And I was saying, where are you buying this book? You know, because it was just popping up, it would pop up all over the place. And then one night, 2010, 2011, I can't remember, a producer, a film producer called Paul Martin got in touch with me. And I think he got it in from the LA airport. How the hell it ever got in there, I had no idea. And he just said he thinks it would make a really good documentary stroke film. So he said, would I mind if he... I had to go at getting someone to make it. And I had nothing to lose. So, I mean, Paul's a cracking bloke anyway. So I said, yeah, just go with it. And Paul just went hunting down people to get that documentary made from 2012 to three, four years. And he knocked on everyone's door. And there was so many people interested. And he, they were top people he was speaking to. And it was just bad timing. It was always bad timing. And then finally... He went to see Asif Kapadia and James Gay Reeves. I think they were just coming off Senna. They just won the Oscar for Senna. No, I think they won it for Amy, but the Senna one was magical as well, about the racing driver. And, yeah, they took it on board after a while. So they bought the book. The book was bought in 2017, I think it was. And then they just, I didn't hear anything for two years. They just went off and they just made the film. And the next thing, it was being premiered in Cannes. Because I think the original idea was to do the documentary on Maradona and then they just looked at Naples and they thought that has to be the basis for the film. And that was it. Wow, so then were you involved at all in the 
production of the documentary? No, not think the only way I was involved was that they used pieces of the book on the website, you know, early doors. But I had nothing to do with the actual documentary. They just bought the book. They just bought the book and went away. Right. Like Sir John, you know, and that was it. <laughs> they will love what they did with it. It was, oh, it was, I thought it was fantastic. It was, and I think it's interesting to contrast the two different mediums that were used to tell the same story. And we'll get on to some of the opportunities that a book lends that perhaps a, at least a documentary doesn't just because, you know, you mentioned 500 pages to try to cram that all into a, say, well, they they, they actually had, they had 500 hours of unseen footage, which nobody had ever seen. Wow. I think it went back to Maradona Productions, what Sister Pillar had is, they were following him all around Barcelona and Naples, these two cameramen. So you can only imagine this How much stuff that no one gets. Well, yeah, I, I initially thought you could easily make this into like a documentary series, like a 12 part or something. I mean, there's, there's you know, I'm sure they could with what they've got. But at the end of the day, it's, got, it's a two hour thing, you know, you just have to use the best of to tell a story. But oh, but there's, there's a book. Another book, you know, they got that footage. I mean, yeah. we've got so many stories I can't tell you. I can tell you offline, but I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that works. Anything to do with Diego, there's always a backstory of and there's course. always utter carnage and mayhem and the characters that surrounded him. And and that's half the reason I wanted to do another final version because when he passed, so much more stuff, people began to talk. You know, about his time in Naples, I think there was a mm-hmm. lot of people were very wary, even though it was 25, 30 years ago, 25 years. He still had that, you know, but when he passed, a lot of people just opened up. Right. And which I was, was going to ask you, actually, you know, because if anyone who follows you online knows that you're a diehard Manchester United, so is that... Perhaps the genesis, the, you know, the, just hey, the, the number of life. stories. Can you imagine it with COVID, Manchester United and Napoli over yeah. the last few years? I'm surprised I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how your yeah, heart can it. take all of that. It's, oh, the two yeah. of the most stressful teams <laughs> to, on the planet. Do you know they've never actually met in any competition, Joe? Really? United. No, I did not like, know that. Never met. I don't know if they ever met for a friendly. Wow. So... As a United fan, I was going to say, you know, with all of these stories about Diego from all over the place, as you said, he was such an interesting person to so many people and so many people encountered him. Is that where your fascination with him began? My fascination, I mean, I'm in early 50s. I was, I remember as a kid, Argentina came to England. I think it was just after, was it 79, 80, I think it was. And he was only a kid. What was he, 20 years old? And people knew about, they knew the name, but because they demolished Scotland the year, the year before, 3-1 three, at Arndon Park. And that was when people really began to realise, you know, what what's going on here with this kid. And the year after, he comes to Wembley, and even though England won 3-1, he was just sensational joy. They couldn't handle him. They would try to kick him, hack him, boot him. They just couldn't get near him. And he, he did a run similar in that game to the one in 86 where he just took the ball and he just went through him like a torpedo. This time, when he clips it, it just went wide of the post, but it was an exact replica of the one that he scored in Mexico, you know, five years later, he missed. Mm-hmm. But it was like, blimey, they should never saw him coming. No, they didn't see him coming in 86, but 
And then, obviously, 86 with the Amber God goal and then that second goal, which is, I mean, I love them both equally. I mean, I'm not a great England fan, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously, he was the greatest player in the world then. But we didn't see the Italian football we, until the 90s. We had something called Channel 4, which started showing it live. But So you never saw that much of him, you know. And by the time we got it on our Channel 4, like Diego was gone. He was gone from Naples. But then, was the next time, was 96, I forgot when I got married, was on honeymoon, was in Sorrento. And I remember walking down this back alley, and I'll never, I'll never forget it. Oh, there was a poster on the wall of the Napoli team that won it four or five years before, 89, 90. And they'd ripped Maradona out the picture. You know, it's just like a team lineup where they all sat down at the front and stood up at the back. But they'd rip Maradona out of the pitch. And I was, I mean, I knew that as some of the stories, you know, with the cocaine at the end, but I thought, to do that. Anyway, there's a little shopkeeper. It was surreal, you know, down those little back alleys, which are just full of shops and bars. And there's this little shopkeeper in there. And I just, he was sat there reading his whatever. Just tapped him on the shoulder and I pointed at the thing outside. I just said, why take Diego out? And he said to me, magnificent footballer, horrible man. And that always stuck with me. And a few other people said that, you know, when we went to Naples and whatever, because I've been several times now, and we went a few times then, back then. I mean, I always loved my gangster stories as well. And it just, I'd had my first book published, and I just thought, what am I doing next? Because I'd done a chapter on Diego in Naples in my first book. And then I just went for it, 2002, 2000. It took me about two years to write, because I was working full-time at the time. We just had that our little boy. So that book was wrote with him at my feet upstairs in the basket. But at the time, the research was really difficult. A lot of it was online, you know, and it was just such a fascinating story for me. I, I mean, my all-time favourite films, like Once Upon a Time in America. So that's where the title come from, you know, straight away. And it, it just had everything. It just, the story just had everything for me. Really did. The gangsters, the football, the drugs, the women, a crazy city, a volcano that's threatening to blow them all off the face of the earth at any minute. So nobody just lived for the day. It was the team as well. They'd never won anything. One of the biggest clubs mm-hmm. in Italy. They'd never won a... Well, they'd won the odd cup, hadn't they, over the 60 years. But they'd got close a few times, but they just could never get it over the line. And they were hated as well, weren't they? Everybody called them the last city before Africa, didn't they? They used to call them all kinds with the racist banners and and it just had everything. It really did just had everything except an happy ending. It really is a, a fascinating story. I think that's why so many people are attracted to it. But you also tell it very well and in a way that, that is enjoyable to read. One last question on the documentary, which is a question we got from one of our patrons, Kevin. He wanted to know if there was anything from the book that was left out of the documentary that you would have liked to see in the documentary. What I thought they skipped, and I don't blame them at all because it was all, it was a time thing, was the season after they won it, where there was all the rumours that it was thrown, and they said the Camorra bet against them to win it, and a lot of the players apparently were threatened towards the end of the season. You know, Napoli just collapsed, and AC Milan come charging through, and he come to Naples and he beat them three two. When they had Rude Hullet and them kind of players. But there was all kinds of stories that were flying about 
there was threats, there was cars set alight, there was graveyards, families would be dug up and dumped on doorsteps. These were just all rumours that was confirmed not so long ago. Fileno, Corrado Fileno came out with stories. And I think because that story is still so tough to take, if it was true, and I suppose it was considered a bit, not a dangerous road to go down, because, you know, they're not the kind of people who worry about that who made it. Maybe it's just a bit too much. But I always thought that that second season, that not a lot of people who don't follow Napoli, you know, I thought that was, was frightening. It was rampant in the 80s, you know, absolutely rampant in Italy. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I think there were, in the book, you even had some anecdotes from people who much later on did, in fact, confirm that there was some suspicious activity there. And I enjoyed reading that chapter on on that match or that part of the chapter, you know, to put it in a more modern day kind of a feel. You know, when you think back to the, the way Napoli played against Hellas Verona at the end of last season, it was basically that times like a thousand because because of what was on the line. You know, that was a, a dreaded feeling for a match that would have gotten us into the top four. Well, a city like Naples, they knew, the manager knew something was going on. Yeah. The manager knew, he could smell it in the dressing room. But this had nothing to do with Maradona. They've even said what went on that season. It was only him towards the end. And he nearly saved the game against Milan. But there was other players who'd had form in the past, you know, who'd done the same thing. And come that following summer, I think it was five or six of them were thrown out of the club, basically. So that tells you something wasn't right. Yeah, exactly. There was a bit of an overhaul there. And you're right, Maradona wasn't involved. He actually scored no. sort of a, a classic Maradona free kick just before the break. Oh, that's Naples for you, isn't it? It's just, it's like, it's just, it's an enigma. It's just riddled. It's such a beautiful yeah. city, but you just scratch beneath the surface. Even the, even the angels have dirt under the wings. I think was one of the lines I put in the book because you just don't know what's going on. Exactly. You just don't know. So the movie was called Diego Maradona, but the book, as I said, is called Once Upon a Time in Naples. You kind of alluded to this earlier, but is that because while Maradona is the main character in the book, this book is as much about the city as it is about Maradona. It became that way. More so in this edition, but also in 2018. I just started to become absolutely fascinated by the place. And the more you dig, you know what it's like, Joe. The more you dig, the more you find. And because it was going to be such an epic, and it was like I was saying, it's my last dance with this book. I thought it's all going in. You know, anything that I found fascinating about it with the history of the city, Going back to Mussolini, they hated him. And they used to draw these Charlie Chaplin moustaches all over his posters, you know, in the city. And uh, oh, Mussolini got his own back because he started putting the air raids on, the air raid sirens on, even when there was no planes coming, you know, just to scare the Neapolitans. That's what he used to do. That's what they give the order to do. So when they were actually being bombed, a lot of the Neapolitans thought, oh, it's just that. And he was actually bombed and he was, there was thousands. Naples was raised to the ground by both sides during the war. It was that fascination, but it's also after the war, they tried everything to win that league and they just couldn't do it. And he had Juventus there who were just, and he got every decision going, that's not right, but they just could never get near that title. 
they just could never get near it. And then you get to the 70s and Naples gets it with cholera and then there's the earthquakes and it's on its knees and the Camorra moving. It's just a blooded city. And then Diego turns up and within a couple of years, everything's, I mean, the place is still on its knees financially and whatever, but he'd give them hope and took them to the title. They never won it. And within two, three years, the champions, and they're throwing out every dirty banner that was aimed at them, they're throwing it back in the faces. You have to just think about, is he a similar to City? He, he was for all the good and the bad. He was Naples. He always will be. I think if you think of Maradona, I think of Napoli. And Peter Shilton getting done on the hand of God. Yeah. yeah. You can't truly understand Maradona without understanding the context that you just laid out and the context within which this story is set. I thought you did a great job of providing that context in the book. I mean, you just gave us a taste there, but there's so much more that's packed into the book. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. If we think of Maradona as the lead role, then there's quite the supporting cast in this book. I suppose it's true of all of us, but Reading the book, I got the strong impression that from an early age, Maradona's path was shaped by the people around him. How important was it for you to tell all of their stories? I don't think you can tell Diego's stories without telling the tales of the people that surrounded him and slowly fell away, you know, over the decades. I mean, you had his agent, Jorge Sister Pillar. I still don't know if I've ever got that name right. But he was with him from like, as a teenager, he became his business manager. And he was with him till Naples, and then they were good friends, but it, they all went haywire in Naples because Sister Pillar, they'd lost her millions in Barcelona. The old drug dealers, everything he touched, it just went wrong. And Sister Pillar thought when he got to Napoli, he'd be able to get all the Maradona logo and everything, and he's going to make billions and billions of lira. But what he didn't realise, it was partly Camorra money that bought Diego. So they took over all the Maradona stuff because Sister Pillar didn't have a chance. And when he did moan about it, he got told just to keep your mouth shut. So that was just him. So in time, he fell away, he'd gone. And then Jalermo Coppola turns up, who's like, loved the party more than Diego. So you can imagine them two in Naples. And then you had his long-suffering Mrs. Claudia Villafan, who's in and out of the book. He had the lady in Naples who he had the son to, Diego Jr., who at the time Diego just wouldn't, you know. And that was partly, Joe, when it all started to fall apart a little bit because when he denied the kid in Naples, it's just that kind of city where you just don't do them kind of things, you know. And then you had his long-suffering president, Corrado Fileno, who took over in 68 and was... He was there for 28 years, you know. He was the president while Diego was there, so he was a character. His own brother was murdered by the mafia, which I only found out in researching. His his brother was a magistrate. They seen him off. I never realised that. That was something that's it's only just gone in the new version. And then you have Mr. Moggi, Luciano Moggi, you know, Jim will fix it, a bloody Italian football. He's features quite a bit in it. I mean, it's just, like I said, it's just, there's so many characters that are they're in light and shade. You see, before you get to the Giuliano's clan, 
the Kamora clan who befriended him when he got there, and they were the ones who, in the end, who, when he couldn't do it anymore, they, along with others, they threw him out of the city. So for me, I just loved it. It's just like writing a, a footballing godfather with a Morricone soundtrack. That's just the best way I can. They're just fascinating characters and stories. They all wanted Diego's right here. You know, everything was, it was always to do, got to keep Diego happy. Diego wanted a Porsche. There's only three types in the world. Coppola or Sister Pillar, they had to go out and get it. You know, when he was in Barcelona, Diego decided that he wanted to go out on a date with Princess Grace, is it, in Monaco. So he told the Sister Pillar to arrange a friendly in Monaco. Well, he tried to track her down and it, it never came off. So he just thought he could click his fingers and it had come his way. And a lot of the time he did when he was doing it on the pitch because people had made heaven and earth to keep him happy. But then I talk about his crown of thorns, you know. If people have been telling him since he was 10 years old that he was a genius, that he was special, you know, he come from God. I suppose, you know, you talk about this part, so you start to believe it, you know, it picks up your personality. So there was that side of him, but he was also capable of the most amazing generosity of spirit with kids, with family, with friends. It was just a paradox, the excesses of how he lived his life. You know, he lived it amongst gangsters, cocaine, he was a great football player, but he also, he did a lot of good. You know, he helped a lot, especially in Naples. You know, he helped a lot of poor kids. Yeah, I was going to ask you about one of those stories, if if you don't mind retelling it, because there was, and this is one of my favorite stories of about Maradona, which was about a boy who needed eye surgery, I believe it was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you mind retelling that one? Yeah, it was March 1985. There was a Napoli striker called Pietro Pizzoni. He couldn't really get in the first team. He'd been out on loans, but he'd been approached by the parents of a sick child. He needed an expensive eye operation, and they just didn't have the money. So he asked Diego, is there any chance he could, like, send him a ball or something or a shirt. And Diego says, don't worry about that. He says, we'll sort a benefit match out. There's a place called Asira on the edge of Naples where the family lived. So what Diego did, he talked to all the players, we're going to play this team and all the money's going to go towards this kid. So that was the plan. And it was a full-strength Napoli team that turned up. And all the other players fell in line because if Diego was doing it, they were doing it. There's only one guy who said, oh, yeah, I'm not having this. And that was El Presidente Fileno. He just immediately retold the idea because of the insurance costs, you know, with, the eight, with Maradona involvement. Because the state of the pitch, you know, there's no way he was going to risk his most expensive asset performing on a mud patch. It was even worse. It'd be like Elvis performing in a Fichea back street alley. That was the kind of thing that, there's no way he'd let him perform there. But anyway, Diego just told him, he said, I don't care. He said, I'll pay the insurance myself. And he did. He paid it out of his own pocket. So he had to back down for Lena. So on the day, like, Napoli turned up. They all got changed, like, the Sunday pub side on the team on the side of the pitch. Once the cars and the mopeds. Imagine that, old Joe. you got the image of the world's greatest player warming up, doing his tricks in front of one Neapolitan and his dog. The game's still on YouTube. You can see it. You can actually watch it on YouTube. And on the service, there was more gravel 
and grasped and actually won 4 0. And Diego was having the time of his life sliding around in the dirt, covered in mud, and he scored a goal. And he celebrated the goal like he just got the winner against Milan or Juventus. That's just the way he was. And in the end, he didn't have enough money for the operation made from the game, but Diego just made it up. He just made it up. He got the operation. The reason why I love that story is because obviously everyone remembers everything he did on the pitch. And as you said in that story... Can I just say something else about yeah. that day? The referee was a guy called, I think it was Castaldo, and he was a traffic warden by profession. So you can imagine what he was like as a referee. But in Naples, that was an that's a mad task anyway. But it turned out that during the game, Diego tried his under God trick. <laughs> Even in a game like that, he tried the under God. But Pasquale spied him and swallowed the goal. And he, you know, he just made a shot. And Diego like, apparently just smiled and said, ah, you've got me, ref, you know, congratulating <laughs> him at the end. But even in them kind of games, you know, we didn't did pull anything to win. He was definitely a competitor, but I also get the sense from that story that you just had to put a ball at his feet and he would have the time of his life. It didn't matter whether there was 80,000 people at the San Paolo screaming in front of him. Obviously, that was important too, but he had just as good of a time playing on you know the local pitch that's more gravel. Look at the life, his life, Biddy Hojo. Exactly. He's just in his own world. That ball's just doing exactly what he's telling him to do, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, there's another story after the 86 World Cup. He, he went home for a while. He was with his mum and dad, and he just needed just a little bit of peace. And one day, apparently, two young lads got the nerve to knock at his door with a ball. Said, do you fancy a kickabout, Diego? And he ended up having a kickabout with him in the garden for hours. Where's the other one when he died? Jim and he died for 30 seconds and then he come back. I think it was 2000 in Uruguay. And he come back from that. And all the reporters are waiting for him as he's coming out of the hospital because they all thought he, he was gone. And he says, how do you feel, Diego? How do you feel? And he just said, just give me a ball. That's all I need. Just give me yeah. a ball. You know, we talk about the context, all of these people, you didn't even mention, you know, all of the players and the coaches and everything. Each of those individuals could probably have a book of their own, but you also can't talk about Napoli without talking about the North-South rivalry. And Napoli played against Hellas Verona not too long ago in our preview with Rick Hoff. We talked a bit about the history of the rivalry and you addressed that in, in this book as well. And, and Maradona's role in the rivalry we talk about things like the earthquake in Irpinia that left hundreds of thousands of people homeless for years. But at the end of the day, this is a book about Diego Armando Maradona. So let's talk a little bit more about him. And I don't know if I'm overanalyzing this here, but in the first half of the book, it seemed like the chapters alternated between telling the story of Maradona's life on the pitch with telling the story of his life off of it. And I'm curious, was that something you did intentionally to emphasised just the two very different lives that Maradona lived? Yeah, it, I mean, there was another story going on off the pitch. The hard part for me was getting him on the pitch, because right? there was that much going on off it, you know, and it's just, it was just like a drama, like a, a 1980s version of, you know, Gamora that's on now. I mean, there was even more lethal back then. But Diego... There was always something going on. You know, there was just never a dull moment. Everything that was happening. Like, say, getting him on the pitch. I mean, I love writing. I mean, what I've done in this new version as well, I put all the lineups, 
you know, the games. And you see some of the players that was playing in Italy at that time. Even teams like Sampdoria, who, you know, are a great club. Players like Liam Brady and Trevor Francis. And Zico was at Udinese every week. You know, even the smaller teams. And then you had Juventus and Milan and the players, what they had. It was fascinating to write about off the pitch as it was, I love writing on it. But like you say, there's one chapter. I just wanted to find a way to tell the story somehow of the city, the football club, and intersperse it all, you know, so it's got a nice flow. I didn't want to concentrate too much on him. The next week, Diego did this, then Diego did that. I just wanted to tell the full rounded story of of the city itself, what was going on at the time, what had gone on in the past, and just the impact that he had. Like his first game away at Verona when he had the leather TV, have a wash banner, and the atmosphere. Maradona, he didn't see that coming. He'd experienced stuff similar with Boca and River Plate back in Argentina and Barcelona, Real Madrid. But the hatred that he spoke about himself, he just couldn't get his head around it. You know, between them, not every time Napoli travelled north or even south to some place, you know, to Sicily, mm-hmm. whatever, there'd be sheer hatred, absolute sheer hatred. I mean, the banners along the lines of cholera, it's sick, absolutely sick. I mean, there was the famous one, stop nuclear testing in the Pacific, do it in Naples. It's still the same now, isn't it? The other week they had the bombing, the Russian... To bomb Naples, I forgot what was on the banner. Yeah, they had the but coordinates of, uh, of the city. It. The coordinates of the city is just, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, the Neapolitans give it back twice as hard, didn't they? I mean, they were dreaded whatever they went because they were looked down on. They, like you say, they called it, didn't they, the last city before Africa begins and the sun drenched skin and all that. They called them just racist swastika salutes coming from the Veronese fans and the Inter Milan fans. Well, there, there was no angels, right? They give back as good as they got. I wonder if, in a way, you certainly got the sense, I guess from the book and the documentary, that he was motivated by these types of things and that if it, if it wasn't the good He's never more dangerous challenge. than when he's got a cause. When you look at Maradona's exactly. life, if he's got a cause and he's fighting for something, like he was in 86, like he was with Baku early on, with Argentina's junior, when he was ever up against it, look at 1990, Italia 90, what he did there. He dragged that team to the final, dragged them. And I know it all went pear-shaped at the end against the Germans, but he was hated. One of the first game against Cameroon, he had 80,000 Milanese fans screaming at him because he just took Napoli to the second title, hadn't he? And he debuted the Argentine national anthem. And he was just, right, I'll show you. You know, and he ends up knocking him out in Naples. There's a book in that. <laughs> yeah. And you talked about that whole thing as well. And that's that's a popular story. And, you know, why in the world that game was even played in Naples in the first place was, well, I'll never be able to understand. But, you know, on his two sort of lives and different kind of personalities, I, I read an article in The Athletic by Amy Lawrence and Oliver Cake that was called Diego and Maradona. And the title is a reference yeah. to a distinction made by Diego's personal fitness trainer, uh, Fernando Signorini, who you also mentioned in the book. I mean, anyone who's basically been associated with Maradona probably features in the book at some point. point I, think his but... cat, I think his cat gets a mention somewhere as well, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Even his cat. Everyone's in there. 
Yeah, and, and then Capadia brought that up. You know, I think he was he did, one of the He first did mention people. it as well. Yeah, well, he quoted the same quote that I was going to bring up, which was that oh, Signorini, Signorini yeah. said, "For Diego, I would go to the end of the world, but with Maradona, I wouldn't take a step." Which really echoes the same thing of you know the shopkeeper in Sorrento that you mentioned, right? It's that yeah, he had these two very distinct yeah. personalities. Just the old Roman thing as well, where the generals just had a successful victory out of war and he comes back to Rome he's not allowed to bring the army into the city but the only person who's allowed in the chariot with him is what they call the Lictore L-I-C-T-O-R-E and all he'd do with all the waving crowds he'd just whisper into the general's ear remember you're immortal remember you're immortal nobody ever done that with Diego you know that's the distinction I'd made between the two of them nobody ever told him don't do this Diego you're only human it's it's every win everywhere. You told the story about the charity match. In that same chapter, you tell another very popular story, which is the time that Maradona met the Pope. And again, it's a story that contrasts the two very different lives that he lived. Now, I got told that story by a British DJ. I can't name him. Who was DJing in Argentina in 91. He was picked up by a private jet and taken from London to Buenos Aires. And he's playing that night, and the place was just awash with cocaine. You have all the presidents, and I didn't see you know, his family was there, all the top politicians. They're all out of the tree on this cocaine. He'd never seen anything like it. And this was a DJ from Manchester in the 90s, you know. And then who turns up at 10 minutes to 12, and the fire doors open. Diego comes in with the Argentine national team, and everything just goes up another level. He was a god over there. He was just an absolute god in Argentina as well, obviously. A lot of these stories that I read in the book, I had never heard of until I read the book. And then other people who read the book kind of started talking about these things as well. And I think you kind of just answered the question I was going to ask, which was, you know, without giving away any trade secrets, how did you even uncover these stories? And it, it sounds like it's just really from talking to a lot of different people, right? Yeah, it was just research, research, research. And people come to me. People, you know, they've heard this story, they've heard that story, and I'd, I'd check them out to a point. If some of the stories was that good, you just go with them. If there was a semblance of truth. But they probably all were, because the story with the Pope, when I got told that story, I thought, oh, that can't be true. So I got it checked out, and it, I got told exactly the same story. It's all exactly the same story. So you have the official version of him turning up with his family and the Pope blessing him and everything. And then the real story is that he was wasted on cocaine and needed another hit before he could see him. Now, I know which one sounds more true with what was going on at the time. But he's, the stories when he's mixed up with the Camorra and the stuff. After the 86 World Cup, a bank got broken into in Rome. And he had a load of watches that were stolen. He had them in there. He had a word with the local Camorra at the time in Napoli. He said, can you find out who's got it? I'll pay so much. And it turned out that the watches was in Naples. They'd been brought to Naples. But unfortunately, they'd been melted down into gold by this Camorra gang. And Maradona was just given a token donation of this gang for his troubles. because They didn't know they were his watches. It's just amazing stories, you know. Yeah, there's so many stories in the book. And, you know, you mentioned Luciano Moji earlier. 
I always encourage our sort of younger generation of fans to go back and watch some of the older videos, you know, read books, read this book. You know, a lot of them probably think of Moji just as the guy that kind of led the corruption at Juventus or Caltropoli or whatever. And a lot of people don't realize that Moji was actually Napoli sporting director back at the time. And, you know, there's stories It's, it's amazing, Joel, without actually saying it. How many clubs won the title when Moji went there? Do you know what I mean? If when you look back, right? But he was the guy who discovered Zola. That was something again that I hadn't realized until I read the book that you know he was the one that convinced Ferlaino to sign Zola, and you know they saw him as potentially being the the guy that would take over for Maradona, and you know in I think it was in the chapter on the eighty nine ninety season, I think it was called Encore, where you describe how Maradona took Zola under his wing, and you told the story in that chapter about a time that Maradona allowed Zola to wear the number 10. Do you recall that one? Well, it, Zola was, he was playing in Serie C. It was, it was, it was in Sardinia. And he was like a hidden gem because the backwaters of the Italian third division, you know, there wasn't a lot of scouts went over there. Serie A may well have existed on the moon compared to what was going on there. But there was a guy, there was, he played for a team called Torres. And he was just, Zola was just on another planet even at that age. And it was a Torres director. I think he was called Barbonera. He got hold of Napoli. He said, you've got to come and see this boy because he was a Napoli fan. Anyway, Mochi come over and travelled over to see him. He watched him for 20 minutes and he just signed him up. Got him straight away. And by that time, Fellaino and Maradona had just gone to war. You know what I mean? And just exhausted each other. And apparently Moji said to his president, when he got him, he says, I can assure you we've discovered another Maradona. And they reckon Fellaino didn't know whether to laugh or cry when he heard that. But the thing was, with Zola, Maradona just, he was like, you say again, he, his personality, he just took Zola under his wing and he looked after him. And he knew his time was coming to an end by then. I mean, this was 1991. And before the game, he just said to Zola, you wear number 10 today. And Zola did apparently burst into tears when he spoke about it later. He just couldn't believe it. He said the confidence and what a wonderful gesture. But I think the reason Maradona gave it Zola was because he knew his time was coming to an end. And Zola Donner, he called him. That's what it was, the Napoli friends. He knew his time was coming to an end and there'd be no one better to take his place. And Zola told that story where they stand in the centre circle and six times out of six, Maradona would hit the crossbar from the centre circle. And Zola did it like three times. And Maradona just said, keep practising and you'll do it. You'll do it. And when Maradona finally left, Zola didn't really think he could, you know, because of the pressure. But the Napoli fans, they, they absolutely adored Zola. And it was nearly riots when they had to sell him shortly after, you know, when the debt took hold. He was threatening to throw Fellaino in the volcano again when they got rid of Zola. But yeah, that was a story Maradona gave him his shirt. He says, look, you wear number 10 today. And it was basically to get him used to it because he knew his time was coming. It was almost up. And he, he just loved Zola. He absolutely adored him. Yeah, and what I loved about that story is you mentioned in the book that Maradona told Zola that he wanted to wear the number nine as a, a tribute to Caraca. Who I, I don't know. Yeah, that was the other story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Do you know what's funny? Correct, they were really, really good mates him and Maradona. But when Brazil played Argentina in 1990, remember when Diego ran through, laid it off, and can it just smashed it in? Yep. The Brazilians hit the bar on the post about eight times. <laughs> but before the game, it showed you what it's like with Brazil and Argentina because someone asked Correcca about Maradona. He says, I don't want to talk about him. I think he's a pygmy. So that was the hatred, but they were, they were really good mates, you know, when yeah. they were playing together. Like you had the Magica, didn't you, with Correcca, Giordano, Maradona. I mean, they were formidable for two, three years, them three. When you watch the game, they're all on YouTube now, so you can see every game. I mean, it's absolutely sensational football. It is, and going back to that Zola story and sort of the aftermath, I think that's another, the reason why we study history is because we hope at least that we can learn from the past. And, you know, nowadays, and, and for a long time, there's been people, you know, wanting that Laurentiis out or wanting him to spend more and, and all of this stuff. And, you know, I guess it's a a debate about what would you give for a Scudetto because the story you tell in the book or sort of the history that you recount is that Ferlaino basically broke the bank. He bet everything on Maradona and it worked out to Scudetto. Well, it was Camorra money as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it wasn't no. exactly uh, legitimate. But he did, he did it. He banked everything. He banked absolutely everything on Maradona. And in the end, he delivered. But it's like in the, the greatest gangster movies, once they're all washed up, they got rid of him. When he couldn't do it on the pitch anymore. Yeah, exactly. They chewed him up and spat him out. And then those financial troubles didn't go away. And that's why the club had to sell Zola and many other, pretty much all of their star players to try to get out of that debt. And ultimately the, the whole thing came crashing down. And, you know, it's a lesson for those fans that, that want to just, you know, spend all the money you can and to win a, a trophy. Yeah. Maybe, maybe good in the short term, but it's now 30 years since Napoli won a Scudetto. And that's a big reason for that. Right. It's in a way I mean, no one would ever call a purchase of Maradona irresponsible, but there are, you know, financial consequences. Do you know they had other players lined up at the time if they couldn't get him? That was fascinating for me to look into. They had Socrates lined up if they couldn't get Maradona. They had Sanchez, who was at Real Madrid at the time, Hugo Sanchez. They also had him lined up. And they also had Ian Rush. They were ready to bid for Rush. Can you imagine that? That book will never have got written if he'd have gone there for me. <laughs> but, I mean, the transfer of Maradona, again, is an Oscar-winning film when you see what went on there with Barcelona when they tried to stitch him up right at the last. What, then was $600,000 and he, end, he ended up buckets going round the back streets, the Camorra, to collect the money and they still didn't have enough. Even though people were giving everything, you know, kids were selling the toys, women were selling... Did they, did they give everything to get him because he was their hope? I think he was more Neapolitan than Neapolitans. He probably landed in Naples and thought, wow, this is just me, this. To me, the two goals together now, Maradona and Naples, I don't think you can separate them. No, they're inseparable. You mentioned it even in the introduction. I don't know if it's in the previous version, but certainly in the new version, that every shop and cafe has in Napoli has a, a picture of Maradona somewhere, right? And usually it's next to San Gennaro. <laughs> yeah. The yeah, San Gennaro got pushed out a bit, didn't it? When yeah. Diego came in. But that amazed me, like, when the, when the team was struggling, the fans used to pray and mass on the terraces to the San Gennaro, please help us. It's just that kind of club. There's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. 
There's nothing we, like it. We talked about that Milan game and that free kick that Maradona scored. I want to just quote a part of the book and the way that you described this play because it's probably my favorite quote from, from the book. So you said, Composers compose memorable symphonies. Painters paint masterpieces. Writers write magnificent epics. And Diego played his football. And I thought that was just a really eloquent way of capturing Maradona's mastery of the ball. I mentioned earlier that this is... That's the red wine speaking up. Yeah, well, you had it then, you know, indulge because that to me that was. You know what else I thought about about Salieri as well? You know, um, Salieri was Mozart's. No, Amadeus, wasn't it? Amadeus and Salieri was. Nobody wanted to listen to him. You know, when there was all the arguments going on about what he was up to. I read a line somewhere, I said, no one's interested in Salieri. They just want to see Amadeus. That was Diego on the pitch. I don't know whether I'll put that line in, but that's it. No, I'm not going back in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let me ask you. I mean, you said writers write magnificent epics. Do you consider Once Upon a Time in Naples to be your magnificent epic? I don't consider it to be magnificent. I'm not that big-headed, but it's definitely my epic. I couldn't top it, not for the research and everything like I've done. Mm-hmm. I've got one lined up, to be quite honest with you, which I'm really starting to warm to, but I'm not... I'm having my break first. I'm under orders. Uh, Escobar, Andres Escobar, you know, the Colombian lad who got murdered by the mm. the cartels for the own goal in USA 94. Yeah. Yep. The actual documentary, the, the two Escobars with Pablo, and the, I just think that is that would be a fantastic story to do. I think that could kind of rival the Maradona thing, but something always pops up, but I just think that Escobar thing you'd be something I could really get my teeth into, you know, like Naples. Because, again, you've got the background with what was going on in Colombia. And incidentally, it was the Colombians winning 5-0 in Argentina that caused Maradona to come back. And he led them, they beat Australia in the World Cup playoff and qualified for USA 94. And then again, there's there's another. But which he could really go to town on what happened to him over there. Always, the drugs were always there, mate. From when he was 10 years old, they were sticking needles in him. They mm-hmm. became the norm. I don't think he probably ever played for 10, 15 years when he was fully fit. Yeah, the way that he was hacked down. I mean, players nowadays would be, they would never become what he became just because they would miss so many games, but he just kept on getting injected and playing through it. And Look at Sardelli, look at Sardelli in 1982, the Italians. Mm-hmm. I mean, that wasn't a man-to-man marking job. That was an assassination attempt. Yeah. There's a clip you can see on YouTube where it's just put them two together during the game. And honest to God, what... <laughs> Gentile, what a name. Claudio Gentile. They nicknamed him the Libyan, didn't he? He was born <laughs> in Libya. He actually... He marked Kempes in 78. And it was the same manager, Berzot. And he said to him, like, four years later, you're my man for Diego. Diego said that for weeks after that game, you know, every time he looked in the, he was in the bathroom, he'd looked in the mirror, he'd see Gentile staring at him in the, through the mirror. But these are every team had a hatchet man in Italy, like Gentile. Every team, and they had one major target. But like you said, they couldn't get near him. That's how good he was. Obviously, they got him now and again, and he'd flash back because he had a temper, he'd strike out. But he was always the main target. You still look what he did, and that was the hardest and best league 
probably since the war, the 80s, in that Italian league, for the money and the players that was invested. And he was just on another level, even to the great players that was there. I mean, it's all right trying to kick him, but if you can't get near him, you know. 86, the Uruguayans tried to kill him. Look at England in the final. They were under orders, you know, just pass him around. But you see what happened with that second goal? It's all right saying pass him around if you can't get near him. That's the greatest goal of all time for me, mate, I think. Yeah, it's got to be up there. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't really think of many, but I'm obviously extremely biased on this subject. Yeah, I'm a little like that. <laughs> so the book has literally closed. How are you feeling about that? You know, you spent so much time working on this. Are you sort of at peace with it or do you think you're going to miss it? Oh, I'm going to miss it. I'm definitely going to miss it. I mean, I end it. There's a full chapter, the last chapter when he dies about how Naples took it and they put the ring of fire around the stadium, like a Vikings funeral, you know, to say goodbye. And I just thought, well, that's it now. I mean, there's nothing else. I mean, I'm not even Diego could come back from this one. Do you know what I mean? So it's definitely, I've closed the door. I won't ever go back to, that's it. It's obviously, it is the final edition. I mean, I've done three. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do any more. I mean, I could probably still go back in and add another 20, 30,000 words on different things, but I don't think I could improve it now, to be quite honest. I'm just happy with it. I read that final chapter and it was a beautiful ending to the book. And I think, I agree. I think it's, it's complete now. I'm sure, as you said, there, there's so many stories out there, so many different people that have come across him and, and you could probably just write on forever and, and it would never end. But I think, I think you've done it justice and you've told the story in that. You need to know when to stop. <laughs> you know, you really do. I, I just need to like, I mean, I've wrote 35 books now, plays and whatever. I've done some stuff for the BBC and whatever, but this has always been my favourite. You know, it's something that I absolutely adored writing. Absolutely adored it. It's the kind of thing, it's the only book where I could pick up on it anytime during the day and just get cracking. You know, like other stuff, what I've been working on, I have to force myself to sit down and turn the telly off and, stay out of the fridge and get cracked. With Once Upon a Time in Naples, it just comes. I just loved it, honestly. It just flowed. I really enjoyed it. Especially the research, you know, when you're looking at the Camorra side of it. I thought that was fascinating. They're all over the city, especially in the 80s. And the politically, how Rome just give up on Naples because nobody paid the tax. They just paid the money to the Camorra. Yeah, it's a staying business. The earthquakes... You know, and Vesuvius, you know, that bloody thing, if that ever wakes up, you know, it's it's end of days. And they're living with that every day. I think that's why there's a certain, just a certain heartbeat in Naples where, like, you know, every day could be the last. So let's just crack on with it. There's definitely a feeling of just enjoy today and uh, we'll worry about. Live for today. Yeah, it's exactly. just the dream. And again, very much how Maradona lived his life. You know, we've told so many amazing stories just in the last hour or so, and I think we've hardly scratched the surface of what you can find inside the book. So again, I just want to encourage everyone, go out, get a copy, you know, whether it's at a local bookstore or online. John, before I let you go, if people wanted to get a copy of the book, where can they find it? Amazon is the best place, my friend. Amazon.com or Amazon.co.uk. Because it's self-published, it just comes through Amazon. 
it won't fit through your letterbox, this bloody thing, but it'll be with you in a day or so. And I tried to keep the price down because it's such a big book as well. I'm selling it for the cheapest I can. <laughs> and it's still quite expensive. It's just, you know, because the way Amazon work, the bigger your book, the more paper they use and whatever. But it looks lovely. I'm dead so proud of it. Really proud of it. It's a nice way to say goodbye to him, I think, for me. If you are into football, into football history, regardless of what club you support, to me, this is a must-have book. I, I can't recommend it enough. You mentioned it's on Amazon. An easy way to find it is if you go to John's Twitter account, which is at John Ludds, L-U-D-D-S. There's a link yeah, right there. Yeah, just click on that, the link. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah link thanks. Cheers, Tom. Right the um, There's three others on there as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that, exactly. Not just the Maradona well. book. There's yeah. a whole bunch there that people can check out. So. John, before I let you go, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, mate. I've really, really enjoyed it. I know we had a bit of fun and games at the beginning where I didn't know what the hell I was doing. With this, uh, <laughs> I try to avoid podcasts. I try to avoid podcasts like COVID, mate. I really do. <laughs> but I'm, I'm starting to warm to them a bit now. People just let me rub it on because I don't get a chance at all. Yeah, so well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you didn't avoid this one. So, Thanks again. Like I said, you can find John on Twitter at John Ludz. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fisketti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at Fortsanopoly Pod. I'll be back in a few days to preview the match against Atalanta. But until then, I'm Joe Fisketti, Fortsanopoly You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.